Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Judith Brett. Judith is an Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. She's the author of numerous books, including her biography of Alfred Deakin, the enigmatic Mr. Deakin, which won the 2018 National Biography Award. And today, Judith is joining me to discuss her new book, very appropriate for this election weekend, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. I'm Andrew Popel, and every weekend I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture. Every week I feature an Australian writer, we explore their latest work, and we discuss how it connects with our world. The Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear those full interviews, get more out of the discussions, and get into the books that you love. Now... From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage is a history of Australia's electoral systems from the period before Federation, and it describes how we came to be a nation that not only enforces compulsory voting, but celebrates it. Between the pages, the reader gets an insight into Australia's political psyche, and perhaps a better understanding of how we've arrived in the current political climate. I'm joined in the studio by Judith Brett. Judith is an Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. She's the author of numerous books, including her biography of Alfred Deakin, The Enigmatic Mr. Deakin, which won the 2018 National Biography Award. And today, she's joining me to discuss her latest book. It's it's very appropriate uh, for our current 2019 climate, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. Uh, and the book offers the reader a history of Australia's electoral systems from the period before Federation, and it describes how we came to be a nation that not only enforces compulsory voting, but celebrates it. Judy, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. This is an absolute page turner, and that may not seem immediately apparent, a history of the electoral system, and I think you kind of acknowledge this. You've done a wonderful job creating this narrative history that is is really unputdownable, and it offers us an insight, not only, I think, into uh, our political psyche as a nation, but perhaps also a better understanding of how we've come into the political climate that we enjoy, I, I use the term loosely, today. So how did, we, how did you get to this book? How did you come to write uh, it? Well, I, this book was actually pretty well commissioned by Michael Haywood, the wonderful publisher at Text. Um, I fi- I'd finished the Deacon book and he said... Oh, my publisher's nose is twitching. With Trump's election and with Brexit, all of a sudden everywhere in Australia people are saying, isn't it great we've got compulsory voting because we wouldn't get these sort of outlier results. And Michael said that he thought, well, he had no idea. He's an educated person. When we got compulsory voting, why we had it, why we were unique, he asked around a few other people and they didn't. And so he said to me, well, I think you should write a book on why we've got compulsory voting. And I said, oh, Michael, I don't think there's a book in that. And um, But look, I'll, I'll spend January and I'll have a look and see if it is. And what I decided was that the story of compulsory voting was actually part of a much larger story about the nature of the Australian electoral system. And there was a whole lot of things that were distinctive. We're going to get into them right now. But I wanted to start by thinking about why we should care about the history of our electoral system and and our politics more generally. Because as we speak, there's two elections on the horizon. We've got a state election in New South Wales. It's just a few weeks away. There's a federal election sometime in May. We're pretty sure that's going ahead as as we speak. We've also recently heard extraordinary comments from Nationals MP Barnaby Joyce that he is the elected Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. 
uh, the duly sort of recognised. And that's a role he resigned in 2018. Now, this statement implies a popular election system uh, and seems to completely misunderstand the way that our leaders come to power. So I guess my question for you is, do we have an adequate understanding, both as a populace and even apparently our MPs, of the workings of our electoral system and is understand and its understanding of how our leaders actually come to power. Yes, well, that's an interesting that comment of um, of Barnaby Joyce because often, and I think this became really apparent when the Labor Party deposed Rudd. Um, people think at an election that somehow they've elected the prime minister, but actually they've elected a parliament, and it's the parliament that selects the prime minister and the deputy prime minister. Um, Barnaby Joyce was elected as a member of for New England. You know, mm. he's. He's, he's showing he doesn't really quite get it either. But I think there is a sense people have that, you know, the leader that takes the party to the election is is part of the deal. Mm. Uh, and I think that's become apparent. And, you know, and Labor changed the rules because of that. And the Liberals are partly in disarray because they didn't stick to it. So... We have this system where perhaps we partially understand how we get the leaders that we get, uh, but it really wouldn't—it really wouldn't be so much to us if we weren't also vested in it. So, can you outline to us why compulsory voting is such an important innovation of the Australian system? Well, look, one of the things to say about it is Australians really like it. I think that's—we've um, had it since 1924. Um, we. People were arguing for it for a long time earlier, but they could never quite decide how much people should be fined for not voting and whether there'd be too many and whether it would be hard to enforce. But I think that Australians like it because we're essentially a majoritarian democracy. That is, we're a democracy where we want our governments elected by the majority of of people, majority of voters. And if you want that, you've got to make sure that all the voters vote. And so I think that was, if you look, Looking back at the arguments, that's the most commonly put argument. You know, if we have compulsory voting, we'll know that the government has majority support. Because in countries without compulsory voting, uh, thirty, you know, it may be fifty percent of sixty percent of the electorate that go to the that that elect the person. So you don't have actually a real majority supporting the government. And part of your discussion and your argument in Democracy Sausage, which is going to be my affectionate name for the book for the rest of the discussion, is that we really as a country need to better understand and perhaps reformulate our origin myth. We have we have Gallipoli as this great sort of testing ground and, and formation of Australia. And this is something that's also reflected in Claire Wright's Our Daughters of Freedom, that we have made this a national myth of, of how we came about as a country, but really... Having compulsory voting and the way that our electoral systems work show a different type of hero. That's right. I mean, and they also explain the institutions that we now live with. I mean, mm. Anzac's fine for myths, and I don't want to sideline that as a, as a national myth, but just to say we also have to realise that there were that Australia had terrific civic achievements. Achievements, you know, it was seen as experimenting in democracy, that democracy had gone furthest here uh, in, by the early 20th century than anywhere else in the world. So I think that that's, it's, it's to complement our understanding of ourselves and to make our sense of our history bit, uh, just a bit, bit richer, mm. I think, than it is. Let's think then about some of those contrasts. In the book, you begin with a, a discussion of some of the different democratic systems in Australia and America, because it would be foolish to think of America as just one straight, uh, one straight solid d- democratic system. They really are quite split among states, as you yeah. uh, you discuss. I, I felt like 
especially particularly since the Obama presidency and the inception of this kind of social media politicking, that there's been a blurring of our understanding of these systems. And we discussed this a little bit earlier. What, what are the essential differences between that sort of individualist libertarian of the American system and our more bureaucratic and sort of government-led system? Yes. Well, look, I think there's a few. And one of them is um, that when we got federation, uh, the Commonwealth government got the right or you know, to, to it, it got the responsibility, I should say, to make the electoral laws. What happened in the United States is the electoral laws got left with the states so that in, in different states you, there's different laws voting for, for, for what are effectively their, their, their federal politicians. And the other thing that happened here that I think is pretty unique that it happened so early is that government public servants took control of administering the elections. Whereas we know in America, in, in the elections are administered by elected party officials often or parties, you know, the governor may be a Republican or a Democrat and he's able to guide the electoral administration. And that leads to all of this voter suppression that's been happening in America which, I mean, I found it really quite shocking. And I I find it hard to see America as a great democracy anymore, mm. having looked at the voter suppression laws or the voter suppression practices, I should say. Things like um, it's a Republican who's organising where the voting booths are going mm. to be. So he puts a lot fewer voting booths into areas where he knows Democrat votes voters will be. So the queues will be longer, so more people will get pissed off and go home without voting. Now, that's unthinkable to an Australian because we have the Australian Electoral Commission running our elections. Hmm. We're not completely devoid of that in our history. It it sort of struck me that these battles over the franchise and how it was granted in our history, both explicitly in legislation and implicitly in the ways that elections were carried out, things like postal votes and being able to absentee vote, had a real partisan rather than an an ideological sense of wanting to bring everyone the vote. Um, Do you think that these practical matters of state tell us anything about the way our system works for or against us? Is it Is it the pollies just out for themselves or do they have an eye on us? I think they have an eye on us. Look, I think there's a bit of both. But what we have got is is a system that's changed incrementally. Like you mentioned postal voting. Postal voting was introduced pretty early in Australia. I think it was introduced in Western Australia because it's obviously a lot cheaper if people mail in Mm. than if you've got to put you know, vote polling booths in every remote location. But Labor was always very suspicious of postal voting because Labor believed passionately in the secrecy of the vote. Mm. And they thought that that could only be guaranteed if it was a person in the booth with their pencil voting. They thought that if it was postal voting, for example, and um, the workers on a, on a station were doing it, that the squatter would be looking over their shoulder and that there'd be threats threats made to them. Mm. Uh, and so Labor was very opposed to postal voting and that was actually a barrier to getting compulsory voting mm. because you couldn't have compulsory voting without postal voting, really. It also had that, that uh, you know circumstance of nudging the franchise towards workers, people who could who could get to the polling booth and disenfranchising potentially more conservative people who might not be able for other reasons. I was very fascinated by the uh, the discussion around the number of women that would potentially be pregnant or have just had babies yes. in the circumstance of an election. Well, it disenfranchised right. them. Yeah, because women didn't go out in public when they were heavily pregnant 
and they had a sort of a lying in period after they'd given birth. So somebody calculated, you know, how many births there were in a year and with how many women that would be in that, that category and said they were disenfranchised. But in the end, Labor gave way on it. And, and once they'd given way, then the path was clear for compulsory voting. So, um, But the other thing is absentee voting. Like Labor was very supportive of absentee voting. That is that you could turn up to a polling booth, which wasn't in the electorate that you were registered in and you could vote. Now, when I was doing the research on this, I found that in the United Kingdom, in Ireland, in some states in the United States, not in all, um, you're registered actually to a particular booth, not even to a particular electorate. Mm. So you have to vote there or you have to have a postal vote. Mm. Whereas we can turn up on election day for, for the federal election at any booth in our state mm. and vote. And Labor was very adamant about this because it had, during the 1880s and 1890s, it had spent you know a huge amount of effort recruiting the rural workers, the drovers and shearers and rouseabouts, into the union, like the Australian Workers' Union, and it wanted them to be able to vote. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily be near their homes mm. on election day. So leaving aside whether the parties were ideologically pure or perhaps being just a, a wee bit partisan in arguing for these yeah. or arguing against these measures, we can really see that Australia was a hotbed of innovation. Uh, w- is this something we, we should be proud of? Is this something that we can we can really see the world taking notice of? Well, I think it's something we should be proud of. Um, I mean, the other one is Saturday voting, you know, which we just take for granted. And we're always rather shocked in the United States, they vote on a Tuesday and in Britain, they vote on a Thursday. And people are not necessarily given time off from work to vote. Um, now, that maybe wasn't such a huge problem in, in earlier days for many people who worked closer to home, but now people often commute big distances for work. And so, again, mm. it's disenfranchising people. Like when um, they look, surveys are done in the United States of the reasons people don't vote. One of the main reasons they give is that they couldn't get to the polling booth because they were working or they were studying. Now, they can always apply for a postal vote, but that requires a degree of organisation and forethought. So, I mean, we have a system that makes it easy for us to vote. Mm. And I don't think we quite realise, I didn't really realise until I started doing some of the research for this book, just how flexible our electoral system was. Mm. Just this morning, I walked past a pre-vote polling Mm. station and I'd, I'd not particularly thought about how early I could vote should the circumstance arise that I couldn't. So it, it really is flexible. It gives us, it, it, it almost makes it impossible not to vote. All of this presupposes a huge number of people who not only need to vote, but are going to vote. Mm. And of course, once upon a time, that wasn't so. Um, even the idea of a secret ballot, people used to turn up in front of the pub and we're, we're going to get shouted drinks. But that that started to change and the franchise started to change. One big innovation was the movement towards female suffrage, mm. uh, which which had huge ramific- ramifications, both positive and negative. Uh, I mean, I, what I guess... negative ones did they have, do you think? Well, I mean... <laughs> In terms of oh, I mean, we can get into the we can get into the you know the deeper discussion around South Australia's position in terms of having suffrage and the fact that they wanted to maintain the franchise. Uh, it, it actually, in large part, I, I think, is responsible for why Indigenous Australians lost 
No, I don't think it is actually. Mm. I, d- I don't think th- I don't think it was a trade-off. I think um, because the uh, the bill that the government brought to the first parliament, mm. the first Commonwealth Parliament, had no restrictions on voting. Okay. Even if women hadn't have been able to vote, if they'd brought something which allowed Aboriginal men to vote, I think it was the it was members of parliament and senators in Western Australia and Queensland who just went into uproar at the thought that Indigenous Mm. people would be able to vote because they, in fact, had the vote um, in Victoria and New South Wales and South Australia. They didn't all have the vote. If they were living on reserves, they didn't have the vote. But if they were working in the community, which many of them were, Mm. they could vote. And so I don't think it was a trade-off. I think it was just happening at the same time. Mm. But, I mean, electoral changes in the late 19th century had led to almost universal suffrage in South Australia. and That's uh, right, and in Victoria. Yeah. Indi- and, and Indigenous women and Indigenous men both had the vote, which they lost at Federation. That's right. Uh, and let's, but they still kept mm. the vote at the state level. Mm. Let's, go, let's come to that, though, because it struck me that, uh, you know, Central to any of this sort of discussion around franchise is this this idea of acknowledgement, recognition of Australia's first people. And if we look at Federation in the decades that follow, I wondered what happened, that loss of the franchise. Do you see it as being indifference or bloody-mindedness or maybe a little bit of both? It's probably a little bit of both and it's also confusion because, uh, for example, the term, if you were a half-blood, as they were then called that is of mixed descent, um, you didn't lose the vote. So so you, you, you were able to vote. But a lot of people, um, Indigenous people, identified as Indigenous. They didn't think about themselves in terms of preponderance of blood or not, mm. you know. Because these are heavily racialised terms that we well, don't they, even recognise yeah, anymore. Well, that's right. They, they, they understood themselves in terms of their kinship relations. So their mother couldn't vote or their father couldn't vote um, they may have had some, um, you know, European ancestry and might have been able to vote, but that wouldn't necessarily occur to them. And so, the compuls- the fact that there was compulsory voting, mm. even at the state level, which should have meant that that Indigenous people in Victoria and South Australia voted at the state level, it wasn't actually enforced, mm. and. They couldn't be on the electoral, the Commonwealth electoral roll. They could only be on the state electoral roll. And also, electoral officers had to often decide whether somebody was eligible or not. Mm. And they tended to use pretty, you know, crude ideas about uh, racialized assumptions about whether they thought somebody was worth being put on the, re- the roll or not. So, I think things went did in a way they in a way went backwards. Um, I, I got the impression we almost had a death by a thousand cuts where. There were matters for interpretation, and That's interpretation right. tended to go in the negative That's for, right. yes. for Indigenous Australians. Yes, and when in the 1960s, when there was a, um, a sort of investigation of what was happening, um, there was a lot of criticism of the way electoral officers had been really not letting um, Indigenous Australians know of their rights in the states mm. where they did have the right to vote. And even, like, um, if they... If, if people had indigenous people had been in the armed services they had the right to vote and a lot of them didn't know this so mm. there was there was no um, no commitment to informing indigenous Australians of the voting rights they actually did have so we're in a hotbed of democratic innovation we've got secret ballots we're moving towards uh, moving towards compulsory voting the franchise has been vastly expanded yes. 
And yet, when we look at the establishment of the franchise following Federation, it's hard to escape the conclusion, not just from our electoral policies and how they moved forward, but things like migration policies, that Australia was founded on some fairly racist principles. If we leave aside the emotive aspect of that statement, I wondered what you saw as the harms to any sort of exclusive principle and limiting the vote in this way and how this this might impact our lives or has impacted our lives moving forward. Well, the thing that struck me was the difference in attitude of the parliamentarians in the southern and southeastern states and in Queensland and Western Australia. Because at the time when the federation debates, when the, the debate about the federal franchise was happening, and dreadful things are being said by West Australian and Queenslanders about, um, you know, ab- about Indigenous people and particularly Indigenous women. There's massacres still happening in the, you know, at the front in the frontier at those states. And so mm. I see this as, um, as as I suppose, just evidence of of the the way the frontier and the, uh, you know, the. the the battle was still happening over land. There was, mm. there was, if there was a lot of, there was a almost like a guerrilla war happening in the Kimberleys in the late mm. 19th century. Um, that indigenous people were still fighting back, and that it's still really unfinished business in the Australian polity, in our in our national imagination, and also in our laws. So, do you get a sense that there were this was in any way a turning point? Because if we if we think about the fact that frontier wars were still being fought, it it may be that the franchise may not have changed things so much because we had people that were determined. They were using heavily racialized language and talking about the death of an entire people. They 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 seem determined towards a particular end in well, some areas. I, look, I think there's two things that were happening. One is that there's still, you know frontier wars happening but the other is that um, the much less I think racist liberals like Richard O'Connor who introduced the bill and makes a passionate speech in to the Senate saying he doesn't want Aboriginal people excluded he says look we've taken their land um, and we're not even going to let them vote in their own country this is this is a dreadful thing he says though they um, People like him assumed that uh, Aboriginal people, that Aboriginal way of life would disappear through assimilation. They were essentially assimilationists. Now, I don't. I think there was much less understanding and knowledge of the richness of Indigenous cultural life um, in that period. So there wasn't a sharp sense of what was being lost. Um, there was. Um, a sense that it was a dying race. That didn't mean all the individuals were going to die, but that people would intermarry and they would gradually mm. assimilate in a fairly easy way. Yeah. Um, and I think there was both here, as I said, a, a lack of knowledge of, in, of the richness of Indigenous culture, a lack of appreciation of how important culture was to a person's identity and also a refusal to recognise the deep racism in certain Mm. areas of Australian life and how really brutal um, race relations were, not just out in the frontier, but in in some of the country, you know, country towns. Mm. Do you see any of that 
innovative spirit still in us? Could we could we change? And I, I have a very specific uh, question to relate to that, because as a nation, our, our leaders were presented with the Uluru Statement a few years ago yes. and calls for Makarata, so a, a truth-telling process that would hopefully lead us towards uh, what's variously just been described as a third chamber of parliament and different, uh, different ways of representation for Indigenous Australians. Do we still have the spirit to make something like that happen, in your opinion? Well, I think it really is going to depend on on leadership because... Um, so not today then. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was very, very disappointing the way Malcolm Turnbull dismissed the statement from the heart because they were not actually asking for a third chamber of parliament mm. that was going to have legislative power. They were asking for a consultative chamber that during the 1980s, Labor set up at SIC, the Australian and Torres Strait Islanders Council, which was, you know, it was flawed, but it was a form of representation for Indigenous people where they could feed in their ideas about about their own management. Mm. And that was demolished by um, the Howard government and by the coalition since it came in. And I think it's really unfortunate that Indigenous issues have become partly marked by partisan conflict. Mm. And because it was very clear when Howard came in in 1996, ATSIC was cut funding to Indigenous um, policies was cut because there was a sense that the coalition had that somehow Indigenous issues like the arts belonged to Labor mm. and they were and they went for them. And I think that's been a really backward step. And, and Turnbull, I mean, basically was too gutless to mm-hmm. stand up against that and argue. And, 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 he, and he did it too quickly. He didn't really read the statement of he didn't think about it he was very misleading mm. I guess one difficulty is, as I've always understood it is that bodies like ATSIC are legislative bodies and so they're they're there at the whim of changes of government and, and a different law can change whether this this body exists now one argument that I've heard is that you know we, we enshrine things in the constitution it makes it much harder to change another far more radical one is that the system might have been broken from the start it was racist from the start we need to tear the whole thing down and start again yeah well that's not going to happen but doing things like treaty how would how would treaty work into our current system and and how might we make changes like that we've gone off topic a little bit yeah well look <laughs> i mean i think we have to think about what's actually possible mm. and it did seem to me that um that the Uluru Statement was about something that was actually possible mm. and that would probably get reasonable support. Now, but if it's going to the Constitution, it has to it has to go through, it has to be won in a referendum, and mm. that means it's got to be a majority of people in a majority of the states. And we've got Queensland and West Australia that are real, I think, are real problems for us moving mm. towards a... A more sort of honest and just relations between settler and indigenous uh, Australians. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think that, I mean, we're not going to be able to tear the system down and start again, mm-hmm. but it's going to depend on a degree of leadership. Mm. Made more so difficult because we have compulsory voting and, and no, high turnout. No, compulsory voting is good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I said, we got a little bit off topic, but uh, we, we have a system that has evolved over 100 plus years where we're sitting here today in New South Wales on the cusp of two elections, so two democracy sausage parties. 
With the rise in power, though, of micro-parties and the struggle of recent administrations that they've had in achieving uh, some sort of majority, a workable majority, there are, there are people that are going to argue that our electoral systems don't always work for us. Where does the legacy of our democratic experimentation stand today, in your opinion? Oh, well, look, I think it's pretty good because, you know, I know, look, major parties are always going to complain about minor parties and newcomers. But I think they're quite a good thing. I mean, I actually think the more that we could have a system where there's more preparedness to compromise, um, that we don't just want to have, you know, A and not A, that that we that the sensible centre that people are now talking about um, is where in the past when I did the work on Alfred Deakin, I mean, one of his great strengths was he was prepared to compromise. He was prepared to, to give a bit um, sometimes that ended up as it did with the Franchise Act with you know pretty poor outcomes, but there was no way they were going to get their ideal Franchise Act through. So what I think is a benefit that we have is that the people who feel really alienated from the system might then form these micro parties, but at least it keeps them in the tent. You know, they, they're not throwing bombs, they're just voting for somebody different. And that's actually the way democracy is going to work. It's a way to help us resolve our differences and it makes it makes the disenchantment of various groups visible. Mm. The other big advantage I think that we can it's become more apparent since um, the polarization that we can see in, in, in the United States that's led to the election of Donald Trump is that when you have voluntary voting, you've got to whip people up their enthusiasm to get them out to vote. Mm. And that tends to mean you go for hot hot red button issues mm. which people feel passionate about and, and you stir up grievance because that will make them vote. Our political parties don't have to do that. So, you know, the, the mild and the not that interested in politics come out and vote as well and are likely to make less... Well, they're likely to vote on a broader range of issues. And I think it keeps our, our politics a bit more moderate. Mm. Let's speak then to the, the, the disenfranchised, the disillusioned, yeah. the people that are feeling a little bit cynical, because you finished the book on a note of hope, that we mm. are in fact good at elections. I wondered though, when we go to the polls, all the parties want to hand us a how to vote yeah. card. And it's, it's, it's very disingenuous. They, it's just got the numbers where they want us to put it. But can you help us with how to vote, Judy? Do you have a cheat <laughs> sheet, the sort of things that the average voter needs to remember about it, the Australian voting system as they exercise their vote in an Australian election? Why should they feel special getting out there on the day? Well, I think one of the things is, is that it's a Saturday. <laughs> and um, like... The democracy sausage in there in the title in a way points to the fact that our election days, because they're on a Saturday, they have a bit of a sort of holiday atmosphere. There's some sense that it's a community event. Now, they're often held in public schools or in local community halls, and that gives them a a bit of a community feel. And from early on, people were using them for fundraising opportunities, so selling cakes and things. And then since the invention of the portable barbecue, we've had the sausage sizzle. And then the democracy sausage, when uh, some people started creating websites to let people know, because you don't have to vote at your particular polling booth, they'd put you a menu. You know, if you were a vegan, you could get vegan sausages down at this school and you could get onions with your sausages at that school and people would choose where to go. So I do think... I've, there's something quite moving about um, 
turning up on a Saturday with the sort of motley collection of people who are your fellow citizens. It mm-hmm. sort of reminds you that there are other interests besides yours in the political system, which is in a sense what democracy's strength is. Okay, I can get my sausage at Bunnings, though. I'm inside the booth. What do I need to remember about our system? Why am I feeling special in the booth? Writing all those numbers. Well, we've got preferential (laughs) voting, so you don't just get one vote, you get a couple of votes. Mm. Um, I mean, look, I think the Senate system and the upper house systems are not perfect, and there's still, as we know, tinkering going Mm. on with those. And we can think that actually the booth was invented by by Australians. That's pretty special. Before that, um, because Australia got, in the 1850s, um, effectively got manhood suffrage, it had to deal with a lot more people voting. And so somebody came up with the idea of compartments. Mm. So that can make us feel special that we're, it's like the hill's hoist, something we invented. (laughs) Fantastic, Judy. Thank you so much for coming into the studios. I am speaking with Judith Brett. We are discussing her latest book, From Secret Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. It is a history of our electoral system and how we came to have compulsory voting. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. It has been really eye-opening. And as as we've already uh, commented off air, I learned something on every page, just like Waleed Ali did. (laughs) That's good. I'm very pleased. Thank you for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Judith Brett. Judith's new history is From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for Final Draft 2SER. You can click subscribe in your podcast app. You get a new great conversation every week. And why not give us a rating or even uh, make a comment to help other people find the Great Conversations podcast? My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.